0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers: Andaria algae body oil and Andaria collagen body lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's o s e a malibu.com code GLOW.
1: Hello everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit World Wars podcast. We are dedicated to that turbulent period in history between 1914 and 1945. If it's your first time here, then welcome. I'm your host, James Rogers, and we have an amazing episode. We have what The Guardian says is the UK's leading scholar of war, Professor Caroline Kennedy Pipe, taking us on a tour de force journey through the First World War, the Second World War, and into that delicate balance of Cold War nuclear politics. We're doing this through the story, the life, the writings, the speeches, of Vera Britton, one of the UK's leading voices of peace through the twentieth century. She started as a First World War nurse, really supporting the government approach to war, but As she started to see the death and destruction on the battlefields of the Somme, treating soldiers from both sides and then the death of her best friend and then of her brother who was killed by a sniper during the war, she starts to become a critical voice of the government. And this leads through to her role in the League of Nations. And then in the Second World War, where she becomes a dissenting voice against strategic bombing, not uncontroversially. And as the scenes of Hiroshima and Nagasaki really influence her way of thinking towards the end of the Second World War, she becomes a leader in the peace movement and the moves against nuclear weapons. A fascinating life, a fascinating history, and a world expert to talk us through it. So enjoy this episode, and if you want to follow along online, then follow us on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, and on Instagram at James Rogers History. But now, here's Caroline Kennedy Pipe on Vera Britain. <laughs> Hi, Caroline. Thank you so much for coming on the World Wars.
2: Oh, James, it's a great pleasure to be here. And it's very good of you to give me the chance to talk about a very important female figure in my life. And I would venture one that perhaps we've forgotten a little bit. So thank you.
1: Yeah, not a problem at all. Well, you're an old friend of the World Wars podcast now, so you can bring us any interesting topic and come on any time. But let's jump into today's topic. Who was Vera Brittain?
2: So Vera Britton was probably the outstanding feminist pacifist of her generation. She was a published novelist, an intellectual, a peace activist, and above all, somebody who had been deeply shaped by her experiences of World War I. So Vera Britton was born into a prosperous family in the north of England in 1893, and seemed to have a glittering future. By 1913-1914. She'd been awarded a place at Somerville College, Oxford, much against the wishes of her father and indeed Vera Britton would remark that she had always felt that being female was something that gave such complete disadvantage that it was like iron entering her soul. So it's fair to say that she really pushed hard for her place at Oxford. She was regarded as formidably intelligent. She loved her brother, Edward, very deeply, who was also due to go to university. And her very dear friend and later fiance, Roland Leighton was also due. They were, in a sense, a glittering generation. And then, of course, in 1914, all of this came to an abrupt end for the men, when World War I, of course, demanded, in Vera Britain's view, And it's interesting, she wasn't a pacifist at this point, demanded that young men from a certain class serve their country. And Vera indeed encouraged her brother to join, at a very young age, the Allied effort against Germany. So at this point, Vera Brittain believes absolutely in patriotism, in national honour, and what it means to be a man. And to be a man of that class was to go and serve the country, Let me just say that within three or four weeks of the war breaking out, she had begun to harbor deep doubts about the veracity of government propaganda and indeed the logic of the war. So although initially perhaps we could regard her as quite naive, and certainly she envied her much loved brother, the ability to go and serve his country and to be a man, she very quickly came to recognise that perhaps the war was going to turn out to be something different to what that generation had envisaged.
1: But she did serve in her own way, didn't she? Because she signed up as a nurse during the First World War. What was it that motivated her to take that decision? Was it that early patriotism and to try and help those like her brother? Or was it more At this time in society, women had few outlets for their intellect. Was nursing one way in which she could progress her own career?
2: Hardly, actually, because she gives up her place at Oxford temporarily to become an auxiliary nurse. And reading Vera Brittain's works, it appears to be very much motivated, not by career at all. She had no ambitions to become a professional nurse or medic. What she wanted to do was, I think, to support her brother, her male friends, and to show that she too could sacrifice for the country. And indeed, she nursed in England, in France, in Malta. And on a number of occasions, for example, in France, she went precisely to be close to Edward, who had fought gallantly at the Battle of the Somme, before being sent to Italy. So I think it was personal and it derived from this view that even though the war was something of a disaster for humankind and for civilization, she had to try and mitigate the excesses and the barbarism. And indeed when she's nursing German soldiers in France, she famously remarks that it doesn't matter whether a soldier is German, French, British, or indeed whatever. It is just barbarous to see this suffering. And she reflected that while her brother was doing his duty killing Germans, she was doing her duty saving them. So I see in this genesis a sentiment that overrides national borders. And again, she remarked that when a man is dying, it doesn't matter what nationality he is.
1: But hang on, aren't these almost treasonous words of the time period? Because you think of the experience of other First World War nurses like Edith Cavell, who were shot for helping soldiers on both sides. Did Vera Britton not run the same risk? No,
2: she didn't. So she was officially posted in France to nurse these soldiers, and it was just part and parcel. So in no way, I think, can we compare her to Edith Cavell. What I think is More interesting about Vera Britton is that her brother will be shot by a sniper in Italy, in the trenches. Her fiancé, Roland, will be shot and die by a sniper. I think what she sees is just the gross inhumanity and the waste. But here's the thing. She still wants to believe that her brother, her fiancé, two very close male friends, have not died in vain. And I think Edward, her brother, is central to her maturity and development. She goes to great pains after he is shot by a sniper in Italy. Great pains to try and rescue him, to try, I think, in her own heart, as she says, to find out that he had not died in vain, had died leading his men gallantly. Of course, he was Captain Edward Britton. And so part and parcel of what she's trying to do is find some sense in the carnage and it's intensely personal and emotional. And, of course, the darker side of this story is that once she publishes the very famous Testament of Youth, her experiences of World War I, Edward's commanding officer actually has spoken to Vera about him dying, and she's desperate that he has died quite heroically. And what occurs is that the commanding officer tells her That Edward has been found guilty through censored letters of homosexual acts with the men under his command and colleagues. And he tells her this because he wants to not destroy but undermine what he sees as some of her more elaborate tales about Edward's heroism. And so it transpires the day before Edward is leading his men, he's been warned obliquely by one of his commanding officers that after this is all over, he will probably be court-martialed for homosexual acts, of course, a crime. If he's court-martialed, well, he can pay the highest price or 10 years in jail. And Vera Brittain is terribly shocked by this. Now, it doesn't diminish her love for her brother, but it does send the family into, because of their class and their reputation, into deep, deep anxieties. And indeed, Vera Brittain's father, Edward's father will kill himself. He'll commit suicide in the Thames. And many commentators have believed that the family shame over homosexuality, despite his bravery. I mean, to read the account of his last day commanding his men, he's wearing a gas mask. Chemical weapons are raining down. And the commanding officer believes that what Edward has in fact done is raise his head above the trench, the wire, the chemicals to allow himself to be shot because, of course, they're engaging with the Austro-Hungarian army at this point. And so this for Vera Brittain, I think, is catastrophic in terms of the stories that have been told about Edward. And it has a profound effect on her, having really loved her brother probably better than anybody else in the world. And even when she eventually marries the political philosopher George Ketlin, on the honeymoon, she insists Edward is buried in the British cemetery, That they go and she takes two flowers from her wedding bouquet to the place on his grave. So I think with Vera Brittain, what happens in the 1920s is she turns into an ardent pacifist to prevent the slaughter particularly of young men, but also she joins the League of Nations to try and help find a pragmatic way to end these wars. So in terms of her generation, utterly scarred by these tremendous losses. And of course, given our own conventions and times, the issue of homosexuality would not be the issue. And I think we need to imagine how the family felt at the shame. And remember, her brother had been decorated for his gallant service in France, being severely wounded, and yet gone back again to Italy. So it's a personal tragedy, which I think Vera Brittain turns after her return to Oxford and her marriage into what will become a lifelong obsession with preventing the excesses of war and war,
1: if it can at all be avoided. Wow, that is a remarkable snapshot into the disturbing social politics of the time, but also the politics of the war, the idea that he was almost coerced into suicide, raising his head above the trenches and how this shapes Vera Brittain's own thoughts and life. How does she end up with the League of Nations?
2: As we know, of course, there is this idea after the end of World War One that this must never occur again, the vast slaughter of men of all complexions. But Vera Britton goes to the British Memorial in France, one of the British memorials, and she sees that 73,367 men who've died at the Somme, are commemorated at this memorial. And I think it's from that point on that she really begins to see her life as dedicated to peace and the prospects of peace. So the League, which of course will fall into disarray, as we know, with the Americans refusing to recognise Woodrow Wilson's vision of an international organisation that could mitigate, or perhaps even the outlaw war, She is for a period very taken with the idea that people of good conscience can really be active in terms of pressurizing governments not to go to war. And I think the League of Nations for her provides a platform, but intriguingly, she soon grows tired of what she sees as endless village hall and town halls, even though we know she's a very lively speaker and what she calls the endless pamphlets which are produced And she really, I think, becomes engaged with some of the peace movements in France during the 1920s and into the 1930s. And this really develops into a very profound view that the peace union is probably more powerful than the League of Nations. So I think Vera Brittain spends the interwar years engaged in this activism. But of course, by 1936, when the shadow of the Second World War is looming large. People in Britain are really torn, and this will remain Vera Britain's touchstone. They're torn between the people who see that Hitler's Germany have to be defeated, however unsavoury this is. And people like Vera Britain, who is more absolute in her pacifism, think that this war should not be waged. And so she's caught from 1936 into the Second World War with former friends and allies who really see that this war is coming and has to be fought. And she becomes, in my view, an absolute and really becomes very central to the Peace Pledge Union, along with Dick Shepherd, who appears to have really recruited her into this. And so what we might call the era Britain's mature years coincide then with this, in her view, catastrophic second war, which will again claim the lives of a generation of young men. And she is particularly taken, and it's worth saying this, even with her opposition to strategic bombing, she always sees very clearly the sacrifice that will be made by the men who've been co-opted into this war.
1: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: But the more intriguing, I think, story of the Second World War really is, and I see this is rooted in her disillusionment with the First World War, she begins to see absolutely that the British government, along with the Americans, are lying about the consequences, are dissembling the consequences of the strategic bombing campaigns of the Second World War. And she takes it upon herself to reject the propaganda of the government and to seek out strategic bombing and its consequences and to become really A very vocal critic of the British government and the Americans, but the British in particular for what she sees as their lies about saturation bombing and particularly the mythology, and I know you work on this, James, of precision bombing. So she becomes an enemy of the government by this forceful, obstinate rejection of what she sees as British lies. And she pays a price. I mean, she's restricted in terms of her travel. She's ostracized by those who don't share her dislike of this war. And she can't see her children who've been evacuated to the United States. So she feels very isolated in this period. But here's the thing about Vera Brittain and other commentators. will talk about her obstinacy and her forceful character. Many indeed say she lacks any sense of humor. But basically, what she wants is for the German people to be treated decently. And, for example, she's a key figure in fighting for the resumption of food aid and relief to the German people. And she doesn't believe the British government at all. Now, here's the thing about Vera Brittain. Not only is she heartily marginalised and demonised by the British government, Hitler, too, also (laughs) dislikes her, and she will appear on Hitler's infamous blacklist. That's one of the people that once the Germans have invaded England must be rejected because he also thought her pacifism was very dangerous. So, you know, she's an enemy of Germany, but not the German people, she would say. And she's also designated as an enemy of the British government. But
1: this pacifism goes deep. It must have been so hard to speak truth to power during that period, but you can see how her anti-establishment thinking had been formed throughout her life. Almost she had been fooled once in the First World War and pushed her brother off to war and she never wanted that to happen again. I'm surprised that she was against the air campaign, though. Surely this was a way to go over and not through the enemy, a way to avoid those ground battles or to at least mitigate the costs on the ground to Allied soldiers. So what was her particular issue with strategic bombing?
2: Uh, The slaughter of innocents. And in fact, she had a very interesting and somewhat acrimonious debate with George Orwell. So Orwell, of course, came to write for Tribune, and Orwell took the view that his responsibility was as a journalist not to sugarcoat the truth, but also not to openly criticize strategic bombing in the sense that Vera Brittain would. So she utterly opposed bombing because of the information that she had seen from the German cities, which had come through intermediaries who talked of the charring, the burning, the bodies in the trees, the innocence. So she particularly objected to carpet bombing and saturation bombing as not serving a purpose. And here's the thing militarily, and I would agree with her, I think unconditional surrender, strategic bombing, probably did instill resistance into the German people and the German army, as opposed to a more conciliatory posture. And so Vera Brittain came to believe absolutely that saturation bombing was not only a crime against civilization, but also not wise in terms of war termination. And we can argue about that. Orwell, of course, took a more nuanced stance, and she was greatly offended by Orwell's take on this, because Orwell argued, how can you mitigate the horrors of war? That in war, these barbarous acts will happen. And supporters of Orwell would argue that he actually was very nuanced in criticizing the British government because he too understood that strategic bombing was not precise. But he was more realistic, it's argued, in terms of what war demanded, even if he disapproved of it. But hers is an emotional cry against the barbarism of really pelting, hammering civilian populations And she famously went on to say she was against collective punishment.
1: That's really interesting. You know, this is someone who has firsthand seen the horrors of war of the Somme, has been a nurse who's treated both sides, who have been subject to this new mechanised total warfare. And I suppose you can begin to see why the idea of morale bombing and taking that to civilians would be seen as pretty horrific in Vera Britton's eyes.
2: And also it speaks to how feminism, because it's interesting, Orwell will remark that, of course, why do you just want to kill men on a battlefield? Why should men always, the very resource that you will need to rebuild society, isn't it more democratic that everyone takes the risk? And Vera Britton, you know, of course sympathizes with the air crews but she still thinks the policy is wrong and again what she really dislikes is this idea that there is any precision involved and in particular the fiction the U.S. maintained that their daylight raids allowed them to conduct precision bombing. Now she's not a strategist but she understands completely that many of the platitudes about precision well, quite simply wrong. You know, they're lucky if they get within two miles. And so her point is, let's just talk about this. Let's get this out in the open. And of course, it can't be. Even Bomber Harris himself, of course, pleads with Churchill. Let's not pretend it's precise. And so I think she thinks she's serving a duty. But wrapped up, of course, in this fatal total war, the British and the Americans decide that they cannot concede that ground.
1: It is a difficult one, but surely it gets even worse for Vera Brittain and her cause, because then you have the ultimate bomb, the absolute weapon, the attacks on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in August forty-five. What's her reaction to this?
2: Well, it feeds absolutely her pacifism in the sense of she becomes committed to the peace movements of the late 1940s and 50s. She is an activist in campaigning absolutely against nuclear weapons, But she also has a broader agenda, which is she sees feminism, anti-colonialism, anti-nuclear weapons and democracy as linked. Now, I don't think she ever has a terribly coherent view because of the time, but she sees all of these things as mitigating against a world where peace is possible. So she sees democracy, feminism and anti-colonialism and anti-nuclear weapons as linked into a project for peace.
1: Oh, wow. So does she become an early founder of the anti-nuclear movement as well?
2: So what I think is interesting with Vera Britton is she gets older. I mean, I think she reaches maturity in the Second World War. And I think I should also say that she did spend a lot of time visiting projects in places like a bombed-out Coventry. So... By the time she's approaching 60, she feels that her energy is beginning to go and that she would like to return to writing. So she's always engaged in activism. But as she gets, as I said, to her 60th birthday, she really wants to write some more. And she's frustrated because although Testament of Youth is a classic, of course, of its kind of a mediation on experiences, there's something about her that her daughter, Shirley Williams, also recognises that she actually exercises some self-restraint in the 1950s and 60s. So her husband, George, very much wants to be an MP. Her daughter, of course, does become an MP. And some scholars of Vera Britton argue she's never quite as radical as she might like to be in public because they've got to get elected. But what's interesting is alongside that self-restraint, her marriage doesn't appear to have been a close one until really much later in life where they seem to be devoted and her husband is the last person who'll visit her in the nursing home because she's poorly towards the end of her life. But there seems to have been an investment in her daughter as the face of socialism. And, of course, Shirley Williams famously will found, you know, the third way in British politics. So it's almost as if Vera Brittain, and remember, she keeps her father's name, doesn't take her husband's name, recognises that the torch has almost passed to her daughter, who of course is hugely distinguished in the same way as her mother. But Vera Britton oh. dies lamenting the fact that she isn't recognised as a great novelist. But here's perhaps the end point and the sadness which is the thread through her life, is she asks for her ashes to be scattered on her brother's grave in Italy at the military cemetery, which her daughter carries out her final wishes.
1: Caroline, thank you so much for taking us on a journey through Vera Brittain's life, which was a life that was just informed by the world wars at every stage, from the First World War through the Second World War, and then her continued drive for peace into the Cold War. Now, I know that you're writing about this, but where can people read more about Vera Brittain?
2: So the work that influences me by a number of excellent scholars, Philomena Badsey, Mark Bostridge, of course, the official biographer of Vera Britain, and Tim Luckhurst, all of whom have written extremely important and influential pieces on uh, this pacifist and feminist.
1: Fantastic. Caroline, thank you so much for coming on The World Wars.
2: Thank you, James. It's a great pleasure. <laughs>